0: names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for
1: anyone else's copyright infringement. Welcome to Escaping Society episode 63 en passant. I'm Teresa. I'm Gumby. And we're off of the Blue Ridge Parkway. It's uh, maybe going to storm so we'll see how this works. We've been playing a lot of chess this summer. In fact, we've got a chess game started now uh, while we're doing the podcast, and that's going to be great. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we've been playing a lot of chess this summer, a lot for me anyway, and um, I was reminded the other day that it's only one of two games that we carry in our limited pl- like space in the van. We have a deck of cards and a chess set.
0: Yeah, I've got a little carabiner and I attach it to the back of our milk crate storage things in the back of the van. So if we're just kind of wanting something quick, you know, we play crazy eights with our cards and um, for a while when we can, when we're in a relaxed pace like we want to, we play chess about once a day. We were in a routine of that for a while and then it's been a crazy freaking week. We were recently on the Cherokee reservation and the radiator blew in the van and uh, I don't have much money left. Um we've not been picking up a lot of work like a lot of people now. Um so we had to have this conversation like is this time like is does this, is this time to walk away from the van and just pack what we can in a backpack and you know start that new life. Um but it turns out Teresa ended up buying a radiator. The mechanic that we went to was going to charge us over $800, but uh 475
1: of that just for the radiator.
0: Yeah, and Teresa wound up getting a radiator for how much?
1: Uh, like 220, 230 bucks, something like that.
0: Yeah, and uh, I put it in, which was way out of my, my element. So, taking the old radiator out, putting the new one in, um, watching YouTube videos on some spotty Wi Fi that we were picking up to try to learn how to do it as I went get done and there's a, a few little bolts and stuff that are left over that, <laughs> you know, that's always part of backyard mechanic in, but so far so good. That was a few days ago. And ever since we did that podcast on George Orwell and Animal Farm, man, like some shit's been coming up in weird ways. Like we heard on NPR that it was the birthday of Animal Farm, like I think that same week maybe or the week after it was really close to it. And we just watched a random movie last night called The Hunt that we got from Redbox And uh, it was full of associations to Animal Farm. And
1: 1984.
0: Yeah, it was just, really? I don't remember 1984 associations. But anyway, Orwell and and Animal Farm, definitely. But uh, yeah, it's just been kind of bizarre. There's been a lot of things popping up lately that, uh, I don't know, sometimes I get this feeling like the fabric of reality is kind of coming apart. And reality acts a lot more like a dream, just weird connections that don't seem to make any sense. And it's been one of those weeks for me. A lot of weird names and things popping up that are like, what are the odds?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was really cool, that movie last night. And just the fact that, uh, I think it was like the 70th something birthday of Animal Farm. I can't remember. But yeah, it it was a significant year for it. So anyway, so this episode is about chess. And I am not a a player of many games. I didn't play a lot of games growing up. I think I was terrified of failure. I still am a lot of times. And the game of chess still overwhelms me. In fact, Gumby says, you know, we play like one game a day if we have a lot of time because it takes, I don't know, two or three hours.
0: Yeah, Teresa will sometimes feel really enthusiastic and want to play a second game, but that never goes well. (laughs) So it's good to just... uh, uh, restrain it to one day.
1: And I think the thing for me that really throws me off is I either start thinking too far ahead. Like I start looking at the board and imagining things that are possible and I get lost in that. Or, and I I say also, um, I miss obvious attacks. So I'm like, you know, thinking, oh, he's going to move here and then I'm going to be able to move here. And then I completely miss his knight getting my whatever bishop so yeah because there's so much going on and that kind of led me to thinking about chess as a metaphor for life especially in our society and our culture um and the politics and military and even those illustrious think tanks um that are all a part of policy making and pushing and agendas and uh Gumby, you said something this morning about think tanks that, do you remember what you said about it was possibly discouraging?
0: Well, we were talking about, and we've mentioned before in other episodes, how the government plays chess. <laughs> that they think, they make a move, and then they think of like what the counter move will be. They think a few moves ahead. Um, and we were thinking of examples of that, like, You know, one that I remember in my lifetime was the code red, code yellow, code orange alerts after 9-11 of terrorist threat, you know, that just kept us really kind of playing the game they wanted to keep us on, focused on what they wanted to keep us on with this constant level of fear, these threats that meant these levels that meant nothing. And we were thinking about the think tanks, you know, how it can feel so powerless that the government... Has think tanks, groups of like intelligent, educated people that are getting together and basically thinking about what the next move is going to be, what the next few moves will be. If we do this, if we, you know, convince the public of this, how are they going to react? And when they react like this, how will that help us? Um,
1: and I'll also say that it's not just government think tanks, but it's quote independent think tanks that the government then uses their information.
0: Yeah, for instance, um, you know, when the whole um, pandemic and coronavirus and stuff started coming up, we and a lot of other people started thinking there's something weird about this. This is such a a strange, in a lot of ways, arbitrary reaction. We couldn't put our, put our finger on it. There was a lot of theories out there. Some of them really out there conspiracy theories. Some of them you might call light conspiracy theories, but
1: <laughs> conspiracy light.
0: A lot of us like agreed that there was just something that didn't feel right about it. And whenever I notice that feeling, I think that's a really important time to consider that the the government, the authorities, are playing a game of chess and to start asking yourself some questions to try to figure out what the move behind it is. Like to ask yourself questions like who benefits from this? For instance, you know, we just listened to a really good Derek Jensen interview on Resistance Radio where he's talking to Oh man, I can't remember her name, but she was something. I can't remember. Yeah, she she was a she wrote a book, I think it was called Silent Spring
1: Electronic Silent Spring.
0: Electronic Silent Spring. Mm -hmm. And man, I hate the way Derek sometimes will cut off an interview strictly at an hour because sometimes they're really good. It's like, man, you should let that roll. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those. And it was really interesting how she was talking about all the effects of Wi-Fi and what it takes to, you know, power these computers. And, you know, even me with my scavenged iPad here, every time I get on Wi-Fi, what I'm feeding with that was really eye-opening. But one of the things that kind of impressed me about that is she mentioned just like in one sentence, in passing, in passing, (laughs) on passant, that's... Mm -hmm. That is what uh, en passant means in French. It's a chess move. But anyway, um, she mentioned in passing really quickly how ever since the um, pandemic, that this reliance, this uh, move towards using more technology has really pushed even further and faster. Um, And to me, that's one of those chess moves. Now, I'm not saying that they have, you know, are advising sheltering in place, the masks, the whole nine yards, um, based on nothing. You know, there's some people that are questioning whether there's a virus out there at all. I'm saying like 9-11, I believe they took a situation and then started thinking, what else can we accomplish with this situation? And, uh, we know for quite a while, they've been pushing this technology on us, you know, pushing us into, um, kind of a new age of, of use and reliance on, on faster and, and, uh, more technology. So as a result, now we're all sheltering in place, social isolation, uh, remote learning. You know, these things are really more and more seeping into our language and our experience. I don't think that's accidental. I think that's an example of the government playing chess. They make a move and they know what the next two or three moves are going to be. And you make a move like social isolation, a pandemic, um, telling people to stay home. And inevitably, that's going to push us into more reliance on technology. And um, yeah, I think that is not accidental.
1: Yeah. And you also said this morning, I think um, this was about think tanks, that it's discouraging to think about all these smart people working on the three or four moves. Oh, yeah.
0: They can feel really overwhelming, you know, to think that they have whole teams of, of people. But the weakness is that these people are insane. Um, These are people that don't even know the value of water, that don't even remember that we need air. Um, I don't think we need to take down society. I don't think we need to take down civilization um, because they will take themselves down. They're insane, (laughs) they're gonna implode. This kind of insanity cannot continue and we're seeing it, that they've devoured the world and now they've run out of things to eat. Um, The question is, how fast are they going to implode? Are they going to take all of us down with them? When I say all of us, I mean those of us who resist and all the other species. That's the question we need to ask ourselves. But as far as the strength of these insane people that have the think tanks, that are playing chess against us, that know exactly how to manipulate us in really disturbing ways, they're defeating themselves. That kind of insanity just can't stand upright. When you forget that water and air are valuable, your time is limited
1: Mhm. Well, I don't have much of a segue for this, so I was just going to briefly mention my history with chess. I don't have much history. Um, my uncle swears that he introduced me to the game of chess when I was young, but I don't think we ever actually played. I think he just gave me a box of the pieces to just like move around and mess around with as little kids like to do.
0: Which is a good way for a little kid to first start uh, learning about chess, actually.
1: Well, yeah, and I mean, I, I wasn't so young. I wasn't, like, sticking the chess pieces in my mouth or anything like I do now. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I was probably, like, maybe six or seven, about to move to North Carolina with my family. And um, my uncle and my grandma, my my uncle's mom, they were probably the only two people in my life that really wanted to like play games with me my grandma would play um easy card games with me and she'd like give us die or um pennies to play with and then we would like bet we would gamble with the pennies but we'd end up keeping all the change so I thought that was cool but anyway getting back to chess yeah I didn't really have any experience with playing chess until I met Gumby and uh that leads me to briefly talk about the power of games that Gumby um, you brought up so you can jump in here. But
0: Well one of the things that I think inspired this episode is I've got these tattoos on my knuckles of uh, the back row of the chess pieces um, and I get those tattoos because um, well I learned how to play chess when I was a teenager from my friends and we just kind of goofed around we enjoyed it um, but I really got serious with chess when I was in my 20s. And I was in this pattern of working, getting a job, saving up some money, quitting the job, and then moving into the woods for as long as I could, um, supposedly to work on survival skills, but usually I'd get distracted with something else. And uh, one of the things I was getting distracted with now was chess. I was getting books on physics and stuff like that because I got really curious about what I could learn about Einstein, quantum theory. You know, what did all this stuff mean? And I was also getting books on chess because a friend of mine would visit me now and then, and he would kick my ass at chess all the time. And he Mm -hmm. had such a huge ego that it really drove me crazy. So I decided I'd learn more about chess. I studied up on tactics and everything. And I would be out in the woods all by myself with this chess board, and I'd play against myself you know, to just kind of go over the moves, to see what these different tactics look like. Um, It was really interesting to play each side as well as I could. Um, God, if you've never done that, um, it's worth a try. It's really, it, it's super interesting to, to make a move, your best move, and then go on the other side because you know what you're thinking. So there's no surprises. <laughs> it's pure strategy. So to have to address that move, there's no surprises. Um, whole different kind of game but I got really into it and started beating my friend, by the way, consistently because I learned tactics. I learned what worked, what other people had learned. He refused to learn the tactics. I told him a couple times, like, the only reason I'm winning all the time now is because of these tactics. I can teach you. And uh, he'd say, no, no, no. He felt like it was cheating or something like that.
2: Hmm.
0: But to me, it's not cheating. Everything we know, everything we learn is borrowed from someone else. Um, And that goes with everything. But I started realizing how many things chess had to teach. For instance, remember, I was studying physics. I was reading in physics that uh, the universe um, could be broken down into mass, space, and time. Those are three of the main factors that compose our universe. The chessboard can be broke into material, position, and tempo. These are the same three things. So just all these different levels I was learning with chess. And I guess, Teresa, we're going to get more into The individual lessons? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. You just wanted me to talk about kind of my history with chess right now?
2: Yeah.
0: So, yeah, there was that going on. And uh, then um, at the same time, I had a pen pal that I had met in a Tom Brown's Tracking Wilderness and Nature Survival course. We were writing back and forth. And we started playing a game of chess um, through the mail. So that was excruciatingly slow. And then I found out she was cheating because she was using a computer because she felt like she felt like she was so bad at chess that that would be the only way I'd be interested is if she used a computer. But then when I found that out, I was like, I'm not playing you. I'm playing the computer. And it sucks. Um, shortly after that, I got a job at a golf course and um, I brought my little travel chess set. and Me and this other guy, we called him Chili. Um, he played chess, loved golf, loved chess. And we go and we'd like take our little golf cart, do the weed eating we were supposed to do, and then hide in the bushes where nobody could see us and bring out our little little travel chess set and play a game of chess. And we loved it. <laughs> and uh, eventually I wrote a uh, disparaging poem about the gol- the country club and the manager there. And uh, I that got I put in my file and I got fired. Um It's kind of one of those situations I used to get in a lot where it wasn't quite certain whether I got fired or whether I quit, but I wasn't getting rehired. Let's put it that way.
1: (laughs) What kind of chess move was that?
0: Um, Sometimes when you make a chess move, you should do what's fun, not what's strategic. (laughs) I'd say that's what kind of chess move it is. Um, People sometimes take chess too seriously, as in life. Mm. But even after that, I kept in touch with this guy, Chili, and we'd play chess over the phone, which I had a lot of fun with. Those are some of my favorite chess games where uh, I'd call him or he'd call me and we'd sit in our respective houses and have our chess set up. And uh, we learned the code, like, you know, King's Knight to E4. Um, so we'd know what the moves were. And that was a lot of fun to be able to play chess with somebody that far away. He lived in Raleigh. I lived in Durham, which unless you're in North Carolina, you don't know what the hell that means, but it's a little distance. Um, Yeah. So I'd say that was most of my experience with chess. Um, Later, I became a grave digger. And um, at this point, I had gotten the chess tattoos tattooed on my knuckles. And I was like the only white guy working there for a while. Mm -hmm. And one of the guys that had just gotten out of prison and gotten the job as a grave digger, he saw those chess tattoos. and He's like, hey, man, I'd like to play play against some chess you know like I love playing chess we played it like when I was locked up all the time
2: (laughs) so finally I brought
0: in my chess board and uh we sit down and this guy just blows me away I it's like we weren't even playing the same game um he kicks my ass and I couldn't even see how (laughs) so sometimes like you'll be playing chess and you'll see like oh wow that was a good move I couldn't even see how this guy was making it happen that I was never in the right place at the right time and he always was So, except
1: for going to
0: prison, except for going to prison, (laughs) but that was pretty neat too, to learn because until that point, I thought chess was kind of being like an old rich white guy kind of thing. Like Mm -hmm. it was a, you know, a level of sophistication, like guys and with plenty of mahogany in their home and leather bound books would play chess. And, uh, to realize that like on that extreme, there's this chess going on, and they're really good. But then on the other extreme, here's this black guy that pr- presumably probably came from a poor neighborhood, got into some trouble, some stuff he wasn't supposed to get into, wound up in prison, and he became a chess master. And I learned since then a lot of people in prison get really good at chess. So that was a neat thing that these two dichotomies both are like really strategic, have that same kind of mind. Mm um and i still don't understand all the implications of that but anyway i got the chess tattoos and after i started teaching kids and everything and learned a lot of other games the tattoos didn't just remind me of all the things chess taught me which we're going to explore more here shortly but games in general um all mammals and some other creatures it said learn through play that's the time you'll see, like, whether you're human, dog, cat, deer. Um, that's when you see creatures doing goofy things that are just a waste of energy, except for play, because that's how they learn, through play. Um,
2: <laughs> <laughs> so...
1: <laughs> I already had a shower gum, but you don't have to spit on me. Well, I'll
0: give you another one.
1: Oh,
0: God. Um... Okay. But yeah, the power of games, you know, I, when I was teaching, I got a reputation for leading games, for learning a bunch of games. And at first I kind of thought that was degrading because I was also trying to teach survival skills. And I was like, I thought they were just kind of dismissingly dismissing me like, oh, here's Gumby. He's the game guy. And I was like, I teach a lot more than fucking games. Mm-hmm. But looking back, I take more pride in that than anything else. That was the most important thing I taught. Um, the games are, are. Everything's embedded in a game. You can teach anything through a game. And by playing games, that is masterful teaching and learning. Um, Really organic. So the power of games. Anytime I can bring a game into something and turn it into a game, even when I don't have like a hidden agenda, like, oh, we're going to learn about this through the game. Just by playing the game, you learn how to be in your body. You learn how to relate to other people. You learn about fairness. You learn about rules. You learn about when to break the rules and when not to break the rules and the true consequences of breaking the rules. For instance, in a game, if you agree to rules and you break them, you can't win because you cheated. Mm-hmm. There's no real victory. The rules, the, the self-imposed boundaries kind of give you something to push against. I mean, I'm planning on doing an episode sometime down the road about games in general, so I won't go much more deeper into that. But games have so much to teach. And so that's one of the things the uh, the tattoos on my knuckles remind me of.
1: And it's interesting, we were talking about the game of chess being kind of a, a game of our civilization. It's it's very complex. It came from roots that are um, fairly militaristic um, in nature. And it's so, like I said, it's so complex that I don't know if any like indigenous tribes would have necessarily been playing this until our civilization reached them. And by the way, the game of chess, um, it's, it's kind of fuzzy exactly where it started, but the precursor, I guess, started in India, and then it reached Persia about 600 AD. And I don't think the games, like the game of chess that we know today the rules were formalized until, like, in the 1400s or something.
0: Yeah, and I find it really interesting to think that our our civilization is 10,000 years old and that chess just came out in, like, the last 1,000 years. And um, how we just kind of take it for granted, like, you know, chess seems like this old game. It makes me wonder what other games we've had that have come and gone and just completely disappeared from existence or what the roots are of some of the, the, the games we're familiar with, like Hide and Go Seek. I mean, they might go... (laughs) <laughs> they probably do go and predate our civilization. I mean, they're old, old, old games that used to and still can teach us valuable things about surviving on our planet.
1: And, God, I'm, I'm trying to play chess and do a podcast. This is hard.
0: Well, ignore the chessboard. That's, uh, that's incidental.
1: <laughs> well, I, I was going to bring up, again, that, you know, the game of chess is, to me hard, it can be draining. Um, and it again, it is a parallel to our society because society keeps us playing and it can be hard to be in society and it can be very draining, but it's kind of difficult to not play the game. And um, why does society keep us playing? Is it so that they can keep winning? meaning the powers that be? A point to ponder. (laughs) Well, moving on. um, You were talking about like what chess teaches you. And I know playing me, um, you've said that it teaches you patience (laughs) and mindfulness. um, And not just being careful. Because if you touch a piece in chess, which has been the cause of a couple arguments with us (laughs) um, while playing... If you touch a piece, at least uh, according to our rules, you got you have to move it. And um, there's another mindfulness part that you brought up the other day that's that we talked about a little bit with the uh, the guy from prison and and all the people that you played chess with. And that is who is the person playing? Like it's not just Gumby sitting here, but it's all the experiences that make up Gumby. It, it's even Gumby's ancestors that are sitting here. Did you want to add anything to that? Um,
0: That makes me think of Bobby Fisher. You know, often there's a lot of ways to play chess. Like there's kind of the old white guy method, which is sort of the professional chess player, you know, and um, the Russians had the, the chess... Uh, oh, God, words are slipping my head right now. But... They went. They won all the games. You know, they kind of had the title, the chess title, for a long time until Bobby Fischer came along. And for the most part, when you play chess in this method, you're supposed to stay quiet. the The focus is on the board. It's very mathematical. It's very objective. the The person behind the board um, is meant to be kind of quiet and not really put themselves. Out there so much as they're just through the pieces. And I contrast that with like, um, the guys playing chess at Grand Central Park that are playing really fast and they're talking shit the whole time. And they're really loud. And there's a crowd of people around them that are also sometimes talking shit. Mm-hmm. And they're putting a lot more of themselves, their personality, not just through the pieces, but they're very aware that there's a human being on the other side of that instead of just looking at the pieces. Um, we are listening to a, um, snap judgment podcast where he was talking about chess in the beginning. And, uh, he was talking about some people playing like that. And he, he said he was learning all the moves of the pieces and thinking like three, four or five moves ahead. And this guy beat him. And it sounded like this kind of, of way of playing chess. And he said, I look at the whole board Mm. So that's a different way of playing chess. Look at the whole board. And I like that. That's one of those lessons I was looking for in chess. You know, look at the big picture. Things look so different when you go into wide-angle vision and you look at the whole picture. And things look a lot different when you look at the individual parts very deeply. And both of them have strengths and weaknesses. Um, And wow, to be able to vacillate back and forth, I would imagine that's the best of both worlds. But Bobby Fischer was a good example of, even though he was playing the style of chess that was You don't you don't talk. It was said that he would intimidate his opponents. He Mm. would put a piece down and put it down, and he had a sneer on his lips, like he had contempt, like (laughs) oh you want me to sit here and waste my time with you? All right, I'll kick your ass just to show you that I can. (laughs) You know that was his whole attitude. And of course people didn't like him for that, but it was kind of a mind game too. You know it was kind of like people would sit down and like oh shit I'm playing against Bobby (laughs) Fischer, you know, and he's looking at me like I'm a piece of crap, and I feel like I'm probably going to prove to him I'm a piece of crap. But I like that. I like how it reminds me that when you sit down and play a game, when you sit down and do anything, really, eat a meal, um, do a podcast, or play a game, that everything you are sits down. Everything you've ever eaten sits down. The way, what school you went to sits down at that seat. Um, Your allergies sit down at that seat. Uh, What you tune into. Are you a bird person? The distractions of those birds singing around you, or somebody who doesn't care about birds, All those interests, they sit down at the chess board. So that one board, and again, I could apply this to to so many things, but chess just works as kind of this crux to focus on, Um, reminds me that what I think I am isn't what I am. Myself, this this thing called Gumby is not just what's sitting down at the board. Everything I've ever experienced, every person I've ever talked to, um, is sitting down at this board, and like Teresa said, my ancestors. Um, the fact that I'm white versus black, I have a different relationship with myself and with chess. A whole different history with that game. Um, it's just amazing the the world that opens.
1: Oh, and you were telling me that chess was often used during courtship. Was that in Persia or?
0: I've heard about it used in uh, Russia, like especially during the the 1800s. That. Um, It was considered a very intimate thing, you know, the way you played chess. And so, you know, if a man was courting a woman, part of that courtship often involved playing games of chess. You know, it was a very sensual thing where they got to know each other on a very close level by the way they played. Are they timid? Are they bold? Do they think ahead? Are they impetuous? Um, You know, it just goes on and on. And they were very aware of this aspect of chess. It wasn't just a cold, cerebral, mathematical thing for them. So yet another way that chess uh, was played.
1: And I was reading that in the beginning when the game of chess came out, there wasn't any, you know, codified uh, methods to win or any sort of, you know, grandmaster that was sharing his secrets or her secrets. It was basically, the, the strategy was attack your opponent's king. And so it was fairly simple and... Um, I'll give you an opportunity later in the podcast if you want, but I think one of my favorite games of chess, I'll go ahead and say, is uh, probably one of the first ones we played this summer where we got high and you were just like, Teresa, don't worry so much about it. Like just relax and let your eyes, or you said something like, don't let your mind take over so much. Like, be intuitive with the board.
0: Teresa does this weird mindfuck thing a lot. <laughs> and, like, it applies to several things, but, like, let's just apply it to chess right here. So, because she is so competitive and because she, it is so important to her who wins, she will <laughs> act like the very opposite is true. Like... I just don't care. I don't care. I don't want to play chess. I don't like competitive games. I don't care. They don't mean anything to me. But the real truth is they mean so much to her that she can't stand losing. And so this is what I was addressing for that game Teresa's talking about because we weren't getting anywhere. I finally talked her into playing a game of chess, and she's sitting there. She's getting upset. It's like Teresa's not fun.
1: Teresa's getting upset. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it is not fun for either one of us. And I'm like, man, chess shouldn't be feel like A chore. Like, how can I snap out of this? So I told her, let go. You say you suck at chess. I don't expect you to, like, be good at chess. So there's no expectation here for you to win this game. And if you don't know what moves to make, just have fun with it. Ask the pieces what wants to move. Be an animist in this game. Practice your animism. What's talking to you? What seems to be saying, like, I want to move. Put me in the game. Mm. Move that piece. Doesn't matter if it's a stupid move because... You know, I mean, if you if you already say I can't play chess, you make a stupid move, what do you got to lose? So, yeah, I think maybe that's why you say that was your favorite game because uh, possibly it got you over a hurdle that you otherwise weren't seeing your way to get through. Maybe yeah. that's what felt good about it. I can take Because I think you lost that game. But the point is, it didn't matter. Yeah. Maybe that's the first time you really, like, had an understanding of chess.
1: As a game, not mm-hmm. as, if if I lose, I'm going to end up losing my life.
0: And there have been times in my life where I got way too serious about it. I'd write down every game. Um, I had journals and journals of every chess game I played. The date I played them, the person I played against. Um, I'd go through the game and put a question mark by the, the, the moves I thought were bad. An exclamation point by the moves I thought were good. Um, which was fun in its own way. But it also was kind of... I don't know, at that time, it was a, a good thing, but it got to a point where I wasn't having fun with it anymore, because it, it meant so much to me to win, and I got in this weird place where I wasn't good enough to beat the really good people, and um, beating the people that weren't as good, they they just kind of didn't want to play with me because I was being so serious about it, so I just got in this, this area that it didn't serve me,
1: mm. and it
0: was good to get back to the roots of remembering, this is a game.
1: Yeah, and more than any other game that we can think of, chess is a game of strategy. There's really no luck involved. I guess unless maybe the luck is like your opponent is distracted or, or something like that. But as far as playing like a, a serious game, there's, there's no luck involved. Like your options are out in front of everyone to see. Um, and... I guess moving into some of those lessons that kind of um, parallel real life, if you will. So we were talking about developing pieces so that when the opportunity comes, if maybe your opponent is distracted or they have a weakness on the board... Uh, you can take advantage of that. Whereas if you aren't developing your pieces, if you're just kind of playing it safe and protecting all of them, you're not going to win. And in life, if you don't prepare yourself, if you don't plan a little bit, you might end up uh, running out of luck, so to speak. (laughs) You want to say anything about that? I mean, all I can
0: really do is kind of repeat what you said in my own words, but... um Yeah. People used to ask me like, well, what has chess taught you if you're saying chess is such a good teacher? And that was one of the examples I'd give is sometimes in life, you don't know what the best move is. You don't know what to do. Um, one of the tactics I learned in chess is develop your pieces. So get more pieces on the board, get them active, get them ready. Cause then when opportunity comes, you're ready to seize the opportunity. Mm. So a lot of tactics revolve around this philosophy. And I started realizing how true this was for life. Um, you know, I often don't know what the hell to do. I don't know what the right move is. And those are times to develop, develop your pieces, develop your strategies, develop your tools, develop your skills. So when that opportunity arises, you know how to do stuff. You know how to sew and patch your own clothes. You know how to gather water. You know how to backpack. You know how to live out of a backpack. You know how to work on a car. Um, (laughs) Just, you know, the, the list goes on and on. But it's always a good idea to develop your pieces and on the board, you know, develop your pieces, but in life to develop just to be ready for those opportunities because they will come. And if you're not ready, you might not even realize you lost the opportunity because it won't even look like an opportunity to you. Sometimes it'll look like the opposite.
1: And do you want to say anything about, um, checkers versus chess? I know we're going to maybe get into a little bit more strategy, like, uh, in what, uh, what happens in life But anything not, you want to say?
0: Not especially I think of when you said that I thought a training day I think it was training day With Denzel Washington and Ethan Hawke And he said something to Ethan Hawke When he was training him Something like You know, this ain't Checkers boy mm-hmm. This is chess And I like that You know, anytime I watch a movie now And somebody's just like We just watched Othello um, You know, this old black and white Othello um, And then the new like Oh, Oh, it was called, but it was the same story told in modern terms. But there was this one character that was the guy that was like playing Othello to get him jealous over his wife and his best friend to just tear them apart so he could have an opportunity. That motherfucker was playing some chess.
1: I think it was Iago.
0: Something like that. But (laughs) you'll see that character again and again. You know, I, I love that character in movies that's playing chess, even though they're often a villain. But I always appreciate their thoughtfulness, their strategy. Um, So I'd say that's the difference between playing chess and checkers, especially if you think you're part of a resistance. And a lot of us are like waving our little flag, like we're part of the resistance. I think you especially have to be thinking about, are you playing chess or checkers? If you're just going out there and tipping over statues and shit like that, that's checkers. (laughs) If you're actually thinking about, if I make this move, what momentum am I creating? What's the next move they're going to make? And how can I use, is that a move I want them to make? How can I use that move against them? Thinking a few moves ahead. Now you're playing chess. Um, For instance, if you're saying you need to take down civilization and you have no idea how to live without civilization, that's checkers. (laughs) That's stupid. Um, Chess is... Trying to accomplish a goal that you have developed your pieces for. You're prepared for.
1: Good point. <laughs> and we were also talking about um, playing the offense, which is typically the white side is considered more offensive. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. that's, that's <laughs> It's hilarious how that worked out, that there's a white side and a black side in chess, and the white side always goes first. <laughs> white privilege. Mm. And because it goes first it is the offensive side. It is the side that takes the offense. So you play the two sides differently. And uh, another lesson in chess is you switch, you know, like if Teresa and I play a game and right now we got a chessboard set up, we're slowly like making moves as we're talking. Mm -hmm. I'm white right now, she's black. If we play the second game or if we play a game tomorrow and can remember, we will switch sides. So that to me is really instructive. You can't just learn how to play one strategy, learn the opponent's strategy don't just learn the offense. You can't really play good offense unless you play defense, too. You've got to, like, put yourself in your opponent's place. You've got to actually be the opponent sometimes. Um, I feel like that's one of those lessons I derive from chess. And I actually forgot what you said. They got me talking, so you need to revisit that.
1: Well, um, I was talking about the difference in strategy, kind of, between the uh, offensive and defensive sides. Like we were talking about the other day, attacking the center
0: oh, to I give know you the most you were options. Get. Yeah, so like in chess, a good tactic when you begin the game is to attack in the center. Um, especially if you're playing white, you're the offensive. You want to claim as much real estate, as much power in the center. Why in the center? Because it gives you... You're the closest to every other point on the board. If I go on the queen side, and then all the action... Is on the king side, I need to figure out how to move all my pieces over there. They got a ways to go. If I'm in the center, they can pretty quickly go anywhere on the board. So I've gotten, what I've done is strategically, I've opened up the most potential. I have the most paths in front of me if I have pieces in the center. Now, interestingly, when you're black (laughs) on the chessboard and you're playing (laughs) defensive, you can play a little more off to the side. One of my favorite responses in chess is called the Sicilian opening, where you come out with your queen's pawn um, two spaces. And that's a less direct defensive, but it's played a little bit differently. And um, yeah, I I found that really interesting. You know, I think there's a lot to be learned from that, that if you're playing the defense, if you are at the the weaker position, um, in other words, if you copied every move that the offensive white piece did, they would win the game because by copying every move, they would achieve checkmate one move before you did. Mm-hmm. Something needs to happen, something different. Um, and so it's on you as the defensive person. Let's say you're part of the resistance and you're fighting the whole fucking empire of civilization. To me, that's the white side, you know, and, you know, all puns aside about <laughs> white people and everything. Colonizers, Colonizers yeah. Um, so if you're the defensive, if you're already on the, the weak side, um, one of the things that is said in chess is if you have a material disadvantage, in other words, there's more people on the board on the opponent's side and less people on your side, it's to your advantage. If you have more people to trade pieces, because eventually you have more pieces left you've got like maybe the last piece left and they're out of pieces. It keeps working to trade pieces. Simple, direct attacks. If you're on the defensive, you want to create complications. Complexity is your friend. Confusion, as much confusion and complexity as you can, um, is your ally because that just invites your opponent to make a mistake. And Teresa brought up an interesting thing that I hadn't thought about the other day. And we were talking about this, that Doesn't our government kind of do that, create a lot of confusion and complexity? Might they not be closer to losing than maybe we think? Mm. Might they not be playing like the losing team already?
1: And you brought up, if we feel like we're on the defensive, meaning that we're fighting something, but we feel like we're at a disadvantage, doesn't that lend us a good place to start for strategy, is to make things uh, more complex?
0: Yeah, to understand we can't play exactly like them because they will win that. We need to play differently, and that should involve a lot of complexity and subterfuge, confusion.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, speaking of confusion, I guess I'll bring this one up, too, because we were talking about meaningless checks, so trying to uh, get to your opponent's king and saying check each time, but if you're just making attacks like you were saying with the statues, like if you're just making meaningless... Yeah,
0: beginners will often do that, you know, just because they can put you in check, they will. So it'll just be this annoying series of check, 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 going nowhere. There's no strategy. And they advise against that, you know, because there's no strategy. You know, you can't build anything with that. So to make sure your attack counts is another thing chess teaches. Don't just make attacks at the leader because you can, make sure that when you finally do make an attack, you've got something to back it up. You have, you've thought a few moves ahead.
1: You've developed your pieces, too. Yeah,
0: sometimes you do put the the opponent's king in check when you know that checkmate isn't on the horizon, but only when you have a reason to. Maybe by moving the king aside, now you can advance a pawn or something. But just to do it because you can, it gets you nowhere. And you, you learn that when you play chess pretty, pretty quickly, that... Uh, Meaningless attacks just drain you. They don't serve you.
1: And that leads us to uh
0: makes me think of Facebook, you know, yeah. the way we're all talking <laughs> shit with these meaningless attacks.
1: Above ground resistance.
0: Yeah. Sounds so good.
1: It sounds good, but it's really just empty threats, just like those meaningless checks.
0: Mm-hmm. Or is it? Maybe some people are actually using that with an agenda. But I'm not seeing the agenda yet. But maybe they're just playing really good chess. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt for the, for this moment.
1: A whole bunch of tricycle motorcycles just went by.
0: Ooh, followed by a really cool old truck.
1: <laughs> and uh, to compare that with the strategy or the tactic of the smothered mate that you told me about, that uh, I guess is something that's fairly complex, but...
0: Uh, well... The smothered mate is when the king's own pieces are getting in his way. So he's smothered. He's smothered by his own pieces. He did not develop his pieces or the other player was so good. And actually this guy that got out of prison, I think I remember he got me in a smothered mate. And it wasn't because I didn't know to develop my pieces. He was so fucking good. He pushed my pieces back against my king. He made me get in a smothered mate. In Japan, this is considered one of the most honorable checkmates is to get a smothered mate that the coup de grace is accomplished by the knight. So that final checkmate is the knight with the king surrounded by his own damn pieces. Um, which if you've never tried that, try it. It's a really hard situation to uh, intentionally accomplish. But that smothered mate, man, that was such a metaphor when I thought about what are the lessons of this? And Teresa and I were talking earlier, like, does this apply to anything in our culture? And we thought about technology and a lot of the things that are given to us. So computers, for instance, we never felt like Russia had developed the computer to drop into our lap as a bomb and and as a weapon. No, it was a gift. It was a Trojan horse, kind of. Mm -hmm. It was something that was given to us that was meant to be a good thing. A smartphone. Oh, boy. That's something I've seen in my lifetime. We didn't need it. We were free of this. We actually had some faith that, like, our family members, you know, would, like, take care of themselves, or if they needed help, find it, or if they really needed to reach us, they'd find a way. Now we're given this gift. You know, this thing that is supposedly on our side, this smartphone, this handheld computer, and now we are smothered by it. We can't do without it. It's one more device that we need to pay a bill for, we're beholden to other people, we need to work, we're more deeply embedded in the prison because of this device that was supposed to be a gift. It was supposed to be something on our side, just like I would imagine with the king, the pawns, the bishops, all these pl- pieces are on his side. And lo and behold, to his surprise, you know, and there's a smothered mate, all these pieces that are supposed to be helping him are in his fucking way. He can't get free. And now he's lost. He's lost the game. He's lost the battle because of these things that were supposed to be helping him. So to me that is the smothered mate. I would say the the, the smothered mate I see is technology, all the shit that we're given that was supposed to make life better, and now we can't even see our way out of it. I was just on a debate on Facebook like I often am. Um, <laughs> Probably
1: with someone that's listening. Yeah,
0: with a lot of with with a few people that are like really involved in the resistance, um, you know, on the web on the Facebook pages and everything. And one thing you hear over and over is like down with civilization we need to get rid of civilization and we're telling people you don't need electricity and yet we're all using electricity yeah it's like a smothered mate (laughs) like we can't we are acting like people who actually believe we cannot survive without electricity at the same time we're preaching to people give up electricity people don't need it so to me that's kind of a version of the smothered mate
1: and in that podcast, we mentioned earlier that Derek Jensen was uh, interviewing this woman. You know, she was she is uh, some sort of fertility person. I read that in her bio. I didn't know that. Well, anyway, I guess maybe that led her into looking at the uh, the effects of all this technology on people's
0: Uh, Fertility problems And one thing that bothered me about that interview And I hope this doesn't get us too far off topic Is that both Jensen and this woman Talked about the necessity Of computers That they were saying like Oh we both use computers Mm -hmm. Jensen was saying he just bought a new computer And you know they were saying like All the bad things that computers do And um, you know Just going into that And yet they both acted like I can't see my way out of it It's a necessity I wanted to scream at the the (laughs) iPad as I'm listening to this. It is only a necessity if you want to stay in civilization. And that is the whole problem. It is not something we need. We need more people role modeling what it looks like to live without this stuff. Because if you're saying this stuff is bad and then what you're role modeling is we need it, nothing fucking happens. Yeah, it was... uh... I almost feel like that's kind of another version of the smothered mate, how this resistance, we're smothering ourselves with these doubles, these, these, I don't even know a word for it, doublespeak.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because uh, that conversation that they were talking, they were bringing up the idea that technology is a necessity or an addiction. And I think if you ask, Many people, just randomly on the street, they would probably say that it's a necessity, but it isn't. Just like you were saying, like it isn't that long ago. And and here I'm talking about mainly electronics, but there's a lot of other types of technology too. Um. But I guess yeah, playing chess. So, um, have anything to say about that? Necessity versus addiction. Um, I guess I
0: kind of already said it. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too... we we got so much ground we want to cover, and we're trying to get these down to an hour, so I don't want to get too hung up on one thing because that's at the expense of other things. Um, but I will just say that things that... We become addicted to things and then we pretend like they are necessities. We convince ourselves that they are necessities. We even design our lives to make them into necessities, as I saw Jensen and this other woman um, doing. And I don't think they even saw it. I don't think they even saw that about themselves. I'm thinking of Ted Kaczynski, you know, out there like fighting the government actively with like whittling his own fucking screws. No computers, no um, electricity. You know, he's something somebody that's actually living like it's not a necessity. Other people are just talking about it. So that's all I got to say. It starts with an addiction. And then because we want it to stay, we justify it and pretend like we need it. And the resistance, people that are in the resistance are just as guilty of this as everybody else.
1: And we touched on this a little bit before, like seeing the board playing intuitively, um, but also seeing the pieces, getting back to the game of chess. Uh, seeing the pieces working as one organism, working together, and really seeing the board. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, another lesson of chess. Um, you know, that we all have our strengths and weaknesses. The pawn has different moves than the rook, than the bishop, than the knight. Um, and that these strengths are strengths, but when you can work together as one unit, um when you play somebody who really knows how to play chess, that's what you're up against. These pieces are all defending each other, working together. They become something more than the sum of their parts. There's a huge lesson in that. Um, yeah, the when I was younger, I read the Tao Te Ching. You know, I was exploring. I still have a big place in my heart for Eastern philosophy and Tao Te Ching and Buddhism and Taoism. My favorite part of the Tao Te Ching... And I don't have this written in front of me, so I'm just going to kind of go out on a limb here and try to describe. But they said basically, the being of a thing makes it handy. The non-being of a thing makes it function. And it talks about a clay pot. You can hold the clay pot but it's the part that isn't there, the hollow inside that makes it useful for anything. If it, if the hollow inside, the non-being of it was absent, all you'd have is a ball of clay, mm. completely useless as a cup. They talked about the hub of a wheel, that there needs to be an empty part, a part that isn't there that allows it to turn and function as a wheel. If it was all one solid mass and it goes on and on, you know, you think all the examples, a house, it's the non-being of a house. But I was really into chess at that time when I read that as well. I think this was when I was in the woods, as I described earlier. And I thought, wow, that kind of applies to the chessboard. Like, I've got a knight here, and I might touch the knight.
2: Yeah, yeah, so that's okay. So
0: just let me off the hook on that, because I'm actually looking at the chessboard as I'm talking about it. So its being makes it handy. I see the knight. It's sitting on the board. It, uh, I know where it's located in time and space. But it's non-being, it's those squares that it's not at yet, that it's threatening. That is the whole power of the night. It's basically just a liability, that one square it's sitting at, because the only thing that that square is going to do is possibly get taken by my opponent. Hmm. It's the other squares, it's non-being, that it's not at yet, That is all of its power. And man, that's a cool way to try to play chess. Focus on the real estate. Focus on the non-being of each part. Um, Yeah, that was just one of those moments that like blew my mind. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I love thinking about that, that part of the Tao Te Ching.
1: And we were talking about um, another move that is not the smothered mate, but the exposed check. Mm -hmm. So...
0: Um, yeah, exposed check is when, like, you have a piece that would be otherwise threatening the king, but you have a piece in front of that, and then you just step aside, and now you have revealed a check, an attack on the king. Um, that's kind of a cool strategy, too, you know, that sometimes it's not a direct attack, it's just getting the fuck out of the way. Sometimes the best attack is just getting the fuck out of the way.
1: Yeah, and I remember in uh, my Tai Chi class. There are moves where you use your opponent's uh, momentum, but there is simply just a turn that you can pivot your body if they're coming at you and you're thinking, like, do I punch them? Do I kick them? Do I use it? No, you you just move slightly out of the way and let their own momentum carry their own ass out of your jurisdiction. (laughs) And that's what that kind of reminded me of, but not exactly the same. Um...
0: I see you've got a Night Fork. Yeah. So the Night Fork I see as American politics and politics in a lot of other parts of the world. The empire gives us a limited amount of choices. In America, it's two choices. You can vote Democrat. You can vote Republican. To me, this reminds me of the Night Fork. Um, the Night Fork is when your opponent – and you know we were talking about the strengths of all these different pieces in the night um, – God, we're getting short on time, and we might not be able to get to all this. But Mm -hmm. the knight's an awesome piece, and the knight can fork two pieces. It can threaten two pieces at once. One of the best knight forks is when you like can do like a fork where the knight is either going to take your rook or your opponent's knight is going to take your queen. You have a choice. You can either give up your queen or your rook, but you can't save them both. That's the beauty of the knight. The knight has this unique threat. It can it can advance. So you feel like you've got a choice. But in the larger picture, you don't really have much of a choice because mm. you're about to lose something that really is valuable to you that you do not want to lose. Exactly. That was mainly your opponent making you take that choice, saying, all right, here's your two choices. Take one. Either way, I win. That's American politics. Pick the Democrat, pick the Republican, and really all you're trying to do is damage control at that point. How am I going to lose the least? Because I know either way I go, I lose. They win. So maybe I'm going to vote for Joe Biden this election. I'm not going to vote. But theoretically, maybe someone's going to vote for Joe Biden, not because they want Joe Biden, but because they feel like it's better damage control. Maybe I lose a little bit less than if I go the other way, or vice versa. I'm not saying Joe Biden's better, shit. I think they're all bad. But yeah, that's where I see the night fork. That's where I see the government when they're playing chess with us. They've got us in a night fork in American politics.
1: And remember, we were also mentioning those think tanks and how think tanks, whether they're independent or they are run by you know government funding or grants, they're basically shaping policy. So you think when you vote that, You're making a difference. But what are you voting on? They've Uh, already narrowed down the choices. Your freedom is gone.
0: And it's a brilliant diabolical move because a full frontal attack is uh, unmistakable. It's an attack. But to give you a choice, well, now you've got freedom of choice.
1: Right. And we also talked a little bit about this. like The government obviously is playing chess. They're not just playing checkers. <laughs>
0: um, was that your Richard Nixon? It was bad. Checkers.
1: Um,
0: you leave the Nixon to me.
1: So, <laughs> gladly. <laughs> what is the government's chess move in allowing us to talk online? Like, talk so much shit against the government.
0: Mm-hmm. I Read think about that a lot.
1: Books against the government.
0: Yeah, how is Derek Jensen publishing these books? How is Daniel Quinn publishing these books? Um I feel like the government could get away with blocking some of these books and have enough support where they could effectively block these books Um, to say they were dangerous, to say they encouraged, like, you know, with all the school shootings and everything, that they're trying to to keep us safer. You know, they could make a really good argument, and yet they don't. I feel like this is a chess move by the government. And when I think of, like, why would they do that? I can think of a few reasons. For one thing, it encourages those of us who are – not in agreement with the government to out ourselves to come forward on Facebook and different mediums and and you know to kind of announce here we are I don't like the government I don't agree with it oh let me buy that book you know here's my name and my phone number and everything
1: and oh yeah I hate the government I won't I won't spoil it but that kind of reminds me of that movie The Hunt
0: yeah oh The Hunt was an awesome movie we highly recommend that
1: <laughs> it's with um Betty Gilpin playing a really major part and Ike Barinholtz, playing apart. I won't give any more away. All
0: right. Thank you for that commercial.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah. And we also have toothpaste that we recommend. Yes. Um,
1: And now you
0: made me lose my train of thought.
1: What was I talking about? Uh, here I am.
0: Oh, and the other thing is an outlet. We're all so busy talking about what people should do that nobody seems to be doing much of shit. <laughs> I think that's another thing that these think tanks have figured out. Like, hey – have you guys noticed like when people talk a lot and we don't restrict that, it doesn't tend to blow up. They just talk. You know, we saw the same thing when we were studying the hobo, the history of the hobos with welfare. Give them just enough to feel like the government is kind of like taking care of you. Um, and there's less rebellion. But if you just tell people, fuck you, you're going to starve. Now people will rise up. you got a problem. So I kind of feel like it's another version of this. Give people just enough freedom to feel like we understand. We think you should be able to speak your mind. Because if they know if they restricted that, wow, people might actually, if I can't just blow my big mouth off, I might actually have to take action. Hmm. Maybe that's their chess move.
1: <laughs> and you also, um, just briefly, you mentioned the after September 11th, the Department of Homeland Security and their bogus system of alerting us and keeping us aware of what the, the level of alert was.
0: Yes, I did mention that.
1: Anything else you want to say about that?
0: No, there is not.
1: Oh, okay. Well, anyway, um, so I guess, you know, we're, we're at an hour here, but I did want to touch on maybe two of the pieces, and I'm going to ask you what your favorite piece is out of the chess game, but uh, we were both talking a lot about the king being the weakest piece on the board.
0: Yeah, we were talking about all the chess pieces and kind of their significance, and Teresa's talking about the king here, so I'll go with that. I find it very interesting that the king is the weakest piece on the board, even weaker than the pawn. You might say, well, the king can go backwards. The pawn can't go backwards, so why do you say the the king is weaker? Because the pawn can promote the pawn gets more powerful the further across the board it gets and can become a queen. The king cannot. The king is stuck as a king. Yeah. So isn't it interesting that the piece that all the other pieces are trying to protect is absolutely the powerless. Liability. Yeah, it's just nothing but liability. It's powerless. It's almost like, you know forgetting this is a game for a minute. Let's imagine anything could happen on this board. What if the pieces realized they didn't need the king? There'd no. be no liability. There's no way to lose anymore, you know, other than just complete eradication of every piece. There's no one piece that could be trapped and like game over. It's like they have forgotten that the king is actually really weak. So I thought that was really interesting that the king's whole power is the people that will follow him.
1: Mm, give them their power.
0: Mm-hmm. And isn't that true of our leaders too? And I was just reading Blink um, by Malcolm Gladwell. And he was talking about all these studies of things that we do that we're not aware of. And he looked at the study of CEOs and like an inordinate amount of them are tall. We tend to favor tall people subconsciously. And I thought...
1: To be in charge.
0: Isn't that funny when I look at the chessboard and the like The lowest man on the totem pole, the pawns are the shortest, Mm. and the biggest man on the totem pole indeed is the biggest. He's the tallest, the king. I just thought that was a funny little footnote.
1: And um, well, I guess I'll ask if there's any other piece you want to talk about, but in... We can
0: go a little bit longer if you want. It's up to you. You're you're the director of this episode.
1: I was mainly going to get to um, what your favorite piece on the board is and why.
0: I like so many pieces for so many different reasons, but my favorite piece, what I usually tell people, is the pawn. Mm-hmm. I like the pawn because the pawn's strength is working together. Um, a weak pawn is an isolated pawn, a pawn that does not have a comrade by his side, or a pawn that is like in front of another pawn, um, doubled-up pawn. But when pawns are working together, they form a really strong line. And what I like about the pawn is how it changes. Every square it fights for and advances it gets more powerful so that little pawn you know when he's still on his own rank there back hasn't moved yet he looks like a little weak little weenie he's not doing much you know you wouldn't trade like a a more valuable piece for a pawn but by the time that pawn moves across to the seventh rank and one more move and he can promote and you can trade that pawn for a queen that pawn is a dire threat i love how the threat increases I love how, like, you know, I can put that pawn, if I can get him that far, and that I can force someone to trade a queen to stop that pawn. Because if you don't stop him, now maybe I've got two queens. I just find the pawn a very interesting piece. And plus he's, uh, you know, he's bald, so. oh. <laughs> he's like my mini-me. Oh,
1: And there's so many of them. Mm-hmm. And we were also talking about how interesting it is that, you know, in our history, especially in the United States, um, the ponds are, you could kind of look at them maybe like the earliest settlers going west and clearing the way, um, putting themselves in danger.
0: Yeah, we were reading, uh, we did our podcast episode, Indigenous People's History of the U.S., Um, talking about Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's book, an in Indigenous people's history of the United States, and she was saying a strategy used by the colonizers is to send the poor people, the uh, settlers, the people that are desperate, and they kind of would form a wall, you know, of settlement, and the rich people would come behind them. Huh. They'd come when the town was established, when the battles had been fought, when the hardships were ebbing. And I thought, wow, that reminds me of the pawn row in chess. You kind of push that pawn row forward and, you know, you throw in a knight or a bishop to help with the battle. These are sort of the generals, the leaders of the pawns. But the rooks, the queen, the king, the really valuable piece, you hold them back because at that point, they're just liability. If they get taken, that really sucks. But the other pieces can fight the little skirmish and push forward. It reminded me of the strategy of colonization.
1: And I just wanted to add that um the pawn the piece also reminds me of the infantry in the military. And oh yeah, definitely. I just wanted to say this real quick like if I could save if I could say anything through this episode and save somebody from going into the military um please do anything else. If you're young and you feel like you've got a lot of energy and you don't know where to direct it, direct it to fighting some bullshit like Bureaucrat or you know, some industry that's like killing the earth, something, anything. don't don't give your life over to the military,
0: yeah, don't be a pawn for the rich while they just sit there on the back row and reap the rewards,
1: yeah. And if you need money, like instead of signing up for the military, maybe develop some skills in your life, like we're talking about developing pieces. Like, <laughs> maybe look at the survival skills, something that'll get you out of this mess instead of keeping you in.
0: And I even thought about, like, why would a pawn advance, you know, what's the incentive? Promotion. Huh. They're the only piece that can promote. And so it's sort of like the back row, you know, these, these the aristocratic pieces are kind of laughing into the, the, the cuffs of their sleeves, you know, like, you could be one of us. If you just fight hard enough and get all the way across there, you might get promoted and become a general like us. If you don't die. If you don't die. It's like the, the pawn's worth is not seen by the back row until they can promote to become something that they see as worthy.
1: Mm-hmm. A queen. Oh, did you know... Um, I just, I'll just throw this in and we'll get ready to wrap up here. But uh, we talked about the game of chess uh, coming to Persia, at least uh, in some part, was like the gateway to getting it into more of uh, Europe. And in Persian, um, the king is called Shah and they would say, while playing chess, they would say something like "shah mat which translates to the king is helpless. That meant checkmate. Checkmate.
0: Yeah, I do remember that. I had forgotten that until you said that. And uh, I remember reading on the, uh, God, there's so so many places we could go, but I know you're trying to wrap this up. But the queen was originally a vizar. It was a male character, an advisor to the king, and was the weakest piece on the board, even weaker than a pawn. And so it's so interesting that in this male-dominated culture, this piece grew in power as it moved and moved. So even before women could vote, the queen had become the most powerful piece on the board. I almost feel like there was a, an acknowledgement somewhere on some level of our consciousness of like, wow, we need the feminine. I mean, we didn't need a female character to play the queen in this game. And yet it became a queen, and the queen is like the nuclear bomb of your arsenal. She is powerful. She can do what all the other pieces can do except for the knight. Um, And that was really interesting, how there's almost an acknowledgement of, like, the power of the feminine.
1: Yeah, and I'll just throw in there my favorite piece, I think, is the bishop because I tend to like how easy it is to move, and how how a lot of times I can do a sneak attack. Of course, you do sneak attacks on me.
0: Yeah, the bishop was originally an elephant, and actually the shape of the bishop is the memory of the trunk. Um, that shape, when it moved over to England, they were thinking, oh, that looks like a bishop's cap, so we call it a bishop. But that that was originally the the tusk of an elephant, and um, chess players often call it a sniper now because the 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 way the bishop moves, it just kind of pops out of the bushes. You know, and it, it made me wonder, like, these were people that were fighting battles. Some of these were generals that were playing the original game. I wonder how they used the elephant in battle. I wonder if it was kind of like a sniper, like something they kind of held back and, like, would charge in for, like, dramatic effect from a unexpected quarter to kind of scatter the, the, the opponent. Oh, and the, the rook, of course, was a chariot. And when you think about the way the rook moves, like charging right down the center through the open file and, uh, the open file, which is a good place to put your rook, by the way, um, (laughs) it moves like a chariot and later it became, came to be thought of as like a cannon too, which has kind of a similar energy, you know, straight down, direct attack.
1: Yeah. I like all the pieces, but yeah, it's definitely, uh, still a puzzle I'm working on to win. Um, so this is kind of our end game here of the podcast.
0: Is there anything that uh, you feel like that we should have gotten to that we didn't? Uh,
1: well, I mean, we we wrote down so many details of the different pieces, but I feel like, um, you know, maybe we could talk about that in, like, an Anything Goes or something podcast. Okay. But uh, I was just going to wrap it up and just use the end game as um, part of our... Uh, part of the end of the podcast here. So a lot of times I'm not going to win the game and I feel like, Oh, what a waste. Like, God, I can't believe I made that mistake. But as Gumby points out, if every time you play through, you gain wisdom, your opponent is giving you the gift of learning. And I really like that.
0: Yeah. That was another thing I remember being impressed with that chess was teaching me is that you never touch your opponent's king. Um, you trap them, and then you shake hands with your opponent. And to me, what that's teaching me is that these things that we think we're in opposition to, these things that challenge us, these things that force us to get better, are actually giving us a gift. And that's why you shake hands with your opponent at the end. Thank you. You've pushed me to be better. Right. Oh, end Endgame, by the way, is also a— uh, the title of a book written by Derek Jensen. That's really awesome. So I'll plug that right now because <laughs> I've, I've recently, like a couple of people have told us like, yeah, we really pay attention to the, the books that you recommend and we read those books. So if we have not said it already and you have not read it end game, I have not read volume two, but I remember volume one was hugely inspiring. And when I got it like first few pages, I was like, Teresa, listen to this. And like, <laughs> it was just, it really
1: excited me. And, uh, a final note before I read our listener comment that in life, it isn't just strategy. We do have some luck sometimes in life. So remember to prepare and plan for that opportunity because luck may be right around the corner. Oh, it's such a like hallmark moment. Uh-huh.
2: Um
0: And remember like another lesson that <laughs> this is a hard episode to wind up, but I just re- I remembered us talking the other day. And we were I was saying like another lesson that chess taught me is if you don't apply yourself in chess, the game sucks. Oh, you're yeah. gonna suck., uh, it's just not fun. So you want to take it seriously. Like that's what makes it fun. But at the same time, when the game's over, it's over. You get up and you fucking walk away and do something else. And I thought, that's kind of the way I think about our lives, too.
1: It's like controlled folly that Don Juan talks about.
0: Yeah, it's that controlled folly. Like you you treat something important that you know on another level really isn't as important as you're treating it like it is. Um, so our lives, you know, it's important to devote our lives to something, sacrifice our lives for something, play the game, play it hard, take it seriously. Otherwise, you just have a meaningless, tepid life that was kind of a nothing, throwaway life. But at the same time, and this actually empowers that sacrifice, you're going to get up. There's a bigger thing going on. This game, this game you call you, when it's over, something continues. This world you're a part of, this world that you were always a part of and was a part of you, it, it goes on. So that's something that chess reminds me of when I look for it. That's one of the deeper meanings in chess I see.
1: Hmm. Well, I really liked this episode. Yeah. Um... I'm gonna read a comment that Tim wrote. Tim from Maine. I don't know if I can do this. Gumpy wants me to do it. In He's Maine
0: from Maine. You gotta honor like his his place. It's a person uh, is part of their place. You gotta honor Maine. Say it in a Maine accent.
1: Oh my God. Um, Bill Gates funds much of public radio. No wonder they push the COVID mantra like they do. That was bad.
0: What the hell is that? I the... don't know. Say chowda. Chowder. Yeah, that's...
1: Uh... I'm from Ohio. We don't say stuff like that. Anyway, Tim, I'm sorry. Um, Bill Gates, yeah. Interesting that you bring him up. There's been a lot of uh, stories being discussed online. I haven't really done enough research to talk about anything that Bill Gates may have influence in with COVID-19 but uh, I wish someone would write us and tell us what you have found out because we have limited internet access
0: Um, yeah I don't know about his involvement with public radio either but like we said earlier in this podcast and other podcasts we do sense and see a agenda behind the way the government is, is treating this whole pandemic ourselves
1: so yeah I I wanted to say, once again, thank you to Tim for writing in, and thank you to others. We still have some comments to read, so if we haven't gotten to yours yet, it's coming. Um, If you have a comment, question, or you want to give us some information that we missed or didn't get quite right, please write to us. We have a comment form on our website, right on the front page there. The website is Escaping Society, all one word, lowercase, dot weebly w-e-e be like boy l-y dot com we also have on our website links to our youtube videos and our facebook page you can just type in escaping society and look for the burning rocking chair and uh thank you also to listeners who have donated um like Gumby mentioned about our radiator like that really helps um and you know if you've would like to donate feel free to do so that's on our website too if you are not in a situation where you can donate that's totally fine we would love to hear from you tell us a story tell us something that uh, we haven't talked about or that we have talked about and Gumby do you have anything else you want to add no all right well thank you once again for listening